Justice! Sword! Give me your sword! Sword! Give me your sword! Sheath your sword! is to be reinstated there was a dream that was Rome it shall be realized these are the wishes of Marcus Aurelius free the prisoners go
Well, good morning, gentlemen. You remember the statement she made there at the last, Lucilla made to Maximus? It's a powerful statement. You are home. You know, that's a great way to look at it. You're home. I mean, home is a place that you belong. It's a place that's been constructed with you, you in mind. And that's what we want to look at during our session today, a man's adventure with his home. And I'm talking about your adventure with eternity when I talk about home. In fact, turn to the first page of your notes, and I want to begin with some opening considerations on your outline. Here's the first. Faith decisions are the most important decisions any man's going to make in his life. Now, as humans, we're not unlike the animal kingdom. I mean, the animal kingdom tends to live by instinct. As the ages roll on and on, I mean, animals have a set cycle, and they fulfill that cycle from one generation to the next, and they do it without even thinking. They just follow those cycles. And man, he's an instinctive creature like the animals, but he's also a reasoning creature unlike the animals. And because we're reasoning creatures, I mean, we ask hard questions, the difficult questions like, why am I here? Where am I going? Is there life after death? Is there someone higher to whom I report to that I will face face to face one day? And it's those kinds of questions that bring answers that end up impacting the way man lives. I mean, sometimes those answers are brought to us by default. We don't even think about them. We just naturally assume that uh, this is the way uh, the future is. Or sometimes uh, we become passive and we resign ourselves to saying, well, we don't know about the future. I mean, we don't know what happens after death. Uh, And yet to say we don't know, that's a faith decision as well. Or sometimes a man takes it further, he probes deeper, he asks the harder questions to come, some, to come to some kind of resolve upon which he eventually stakes his life. In other words, a man would say, today I will manage the affairs of my life in one way or the other, believing that in eternity there are four possible outcomes. And we've looked at these uh, in the past, four outcomes Uh, Four options he can choose from. I mean, the first is pretty simple. Nobody sees and nobody cares. That's the first option. So in a given day, you're making decisions about your marriage, about business, about relationships. And if you believe nobody sees and nobody cares, that's going to have impact on how you make those decisions. On the other hand, there's another option, a second option. Many believe somebody sees, but it doesn't matter. Now, that viewpoint tends to cultivate greater and greater selfishness because if it doesn't matter, then there's no one greater to live for than myself. So it initiates more and more and deeper and deeper selfishness. Or you may believe the third option, somebody sees... And is keeping score. Now, that's where it gets a little tighter, doesn't it? Because if somebody's keeping score, then I probably have to maintain some kind of percentage in my life so that I measure up, and that affects the decisions I make day to day, moment by moment, in my marriage, in my business, uh, handle how I handle my finances, personal choices. 
And then lastly, there's that fourth option we've looked at. Somebody sees and wants to help. And if that's true, then, well, it's probably in the best interest to find that help, to seek it out. And over the past two weeks, we talked about those four philosophical options. Now, if nobody sees and nobody cares, you need to know that's a meaningless universe. It's meaningless. You also need to know if somebody sees, but it doesn't matter, well, then that would mean we live in an amoral universe. There is no right or wrong. Everything goes and anything goes. On the other hand, if somebody sees and is keeping score or somebody sees and wants to help us, that's a purposeful universe And that means that at some point there will be a summation, an appointed summation of a man's life where you're going to be held responsible for the decisions you make, the direction you go. And you need to be reminded that faith decisions then are probably the most important decisions a man will ever make. Now notice, secondly, B, what we believe about our finish and our future is called the sacred ground of the mind. Now you remember we talked all about that. And the more cultivated this ground is, the more fruitful will be our life now and in the future. Now, remember, we said sacred ground in the mind is that spot in our imagination where we can anticipate how life will end. And so we go there, and we go there from time to time and look back to the present to evaluate the present And when we do that, we can draw stability and focus and encouragement. Uh, It gives us a sense of direction because this is the way we want our our end to be. So it gives us direction and accountability. So really from this... Oh, keep going. There we go. There we go. So it's, it's from this sacred ground of the mind that we look back from the future, and we measure our present. We draw encouragement and focus and stability. Now, we look back from the future to ask ourselves, will will the way I'm living today deliver what I'm envisioning that I want in the future? So what do I need to do now to impact that outcome in the present? It's asking, how do I want to finish? So it stands in the future, it looks forward, but it also has, I mean, it looks backwards, but it also has a forward look to it. It looks to the future and asks, how am I going to enter the next life? What's, it that, what's that going to be like? Am I confident about where I'm going? So that's the sacred ground of the mind. It looks back to the present, it looks forward to the future, and it asks the hard questions. Now, the third consideration, letter C, every man believes something about his finish, whether he admits it or not. When I'm over at McDonald's, sometimes I get breakfast over there, I can hear the older guys just complaining all the time. They're complaining about their aches and pains, their life's falling apart. I mean, they're complaining about the fact that they... They can't drink anymore. They can't smoke, smoke anymore. They, they're having a hard time peeing, and they're complaining about they're no good with women. Uh, and as you listen to them complain, 
uh, it's kind of like life is over now. Those guys believe something about life in the future. I mean, you can hear it through their complaint, whether their conscience of thinking about the future or not. Uh, they have an opinion that impacts their life. Now, here's what I want you to know in light of the fact that we think about the future and we think about uh, our life in the present, and that is you can't take the fifth when it comes to eternal matters. You can't say, I don't know. You say, you can't know, therefore I will not believe anything. If that's the option you choose, but well, you need to know that that's really a faith decision. You think about it logically, it's a faith decision. It's saying, I'm rejecting option three and four, and I'm going to trust that option one or two of the four options we looked at, those must be true. And that's a faith decision. In other words, option uh, one and two says it's over and nobody sees and nobody cares, or it's over and somebody sees and it doesn't matter. That's your faith decision. You're believing that's true. And that's what you really believe. So you really can't say that uh, I don't believe anything because you do. Now, years ago... Uh, when I was in college at Mississippi State, uh, Tom Skinner, you may have heard that name, he's written several books, came to our campus and spoke to our group uh, with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now, Skinner was uh, had a, a background in gangs, and uh, he was living in Washington, D.C., where he worked with gangs. And he was also the chaplain of the Redskins at the time. And while he was speaking, he made this profound statement uh, about wrestling with these philosophical issues of life. Listen to what he said. He said, I spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts. I mean, we all have doubts. You've got doubts. I've got doubts. We've all got doubts at some level. So he says, I, I, uh, I've spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts. And then suddenly I realized I had better come to grips with what I believe. I have since moved from the agony of questions I cannot answer to the reality of answers I cannot escape, and it's been a great relief to me. I mean, every one of us can complain, what if, what if, what if. You can wear yourself out wondering, what if, about the future. You can what if your life away, but Skinner says that you'll never get all your what-ifs answered. You'll never get all your questions answered. Ultimately, it's just going to require a step of faith saying, I'm going to believe this. Uh, now, that, that's not unusual. Every time you get on an airline, you you take a step of faith. You're aware of that? We take steps of faith throughout the day. Uh, when you get on an airline and fly across country, you are trusting. That's what faith means, trusting that airline to get you to your destination. Now, what's interesting is that you don't have to go to school and learn everything there is to know about aerodynamics to trust that airline to get you to your destination. No, you don't. You, you don't have to have exhaustive faith. All you got to have is reasonable faith. It's a reputable airline. You know the pilots are trained well. You don't have to have exhaustive faith. Every aerodynamic question answered for you. You just got to have reasonable faith. All your questions will never be answered, but here is the rub. 
you have to take all of yourself on the airline in order to get to the destination. You can't say, you know, I've looked at the evidence and I'm 80% sure this airline is going to get to me to my destination. 80% sure it's not going to end in a crash. So you take 80% of you on the plane? No, you have to take all of yourself on the plane. Every time you take all of yourself, your commitment will always exceed the evidence, gentlemen. It always does. That's what faith is. And that's why what Skinner said, I think, is so important. He said, I've since moved from the agony of questions I cannot answer to the reality of answers I cannot escape. And that's been a great relief to me. So, of the four options we've talked about, which one is most reasonable to you? You don't have to know everything about them, but what seems most reasonable? Someone sees, but it does, oh, I'm sorry, nobody sees and nobody cares, the meaningless universe. Someone sees, but it doesn't matter, the amoral universe. Somebody sees and is keeping score, or somebody sees and wants to help, the purposeful universe. I mean, those are the four choices you have. So which one seems most reasonable to you? And then finally, letter D, as we kind of summarize where we've been, uh, we ended last week with two questions concerning a purposeful universe whose most meaningful endpoint was heaven. The first is, how good do you have to be to merit heaven? And then uh, second is just as important, is there another way besides having to be good enough. I think those are the premier questions that need to be asked. How good? And is there another way besides being good enough? So I would like to just take a moment today. Uh, you didn't realize you are getting kind of come to a religious religion class and give you kind of an overview of what the world's religions say. In fact, when you came in, you should have picked up this uh, this is kind of a summary because you'll never write it all down. So I've given it to you so you can have a copy of just the overview. Uh, so I've included on your sheet the great religions of the world in your notes. I mean, there's modern Judaism, there's Islam, Hindu, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, and Christianity. And I, I want to look at those and see what they offer at the end and what they say about what it takes to get there. Now, when I say modern Judaism, I'm not talking about ancient Judaism. Uh, they are different. Now, modern Judaism says anyone can gain heaven through commitment to one God and moral living. Judaism believes in an afterlife, but does not stress preparing man for it. So Judaism is a religion of the good and the moral. It's an ethical religion. As you put your faith in the one God, they don't define what that God is other than uh, it's the one God, uh, but you put your faith in him. But nowhere in Judaism do they define how good is good enough. That's the question you want answered. How good is good enough? Now, ancient Judaism, they, they felt differently. I mean, ancient Judaism said you can't be good enough, so there was a sacrificial system uh, that was put into practice so the people of Israel could atone for their sins because they knew they would never be good enough, that no one could be good enough. 
But modern day Judaism has kind of morphed to believe differently that you're to be good, but nobody defines what good enough is. What about Islam? What do Muslims believe? Well, uh, man enters heaven by good works as declared in the Quran. Hell is for those who oppose Allah and his prophet Muhammad. Now, you're probably not aware of it, but there are four sacred books in um, Islam. Uh, the last book is the Quran. It was given to Muhammad in a cave uh, by the angel Gabriel. And it was given last and considered as the correction to the other three previous books, which has created all sorts of tension in Islam because you, you got those who want to elevate the other three books as high as the Quran, uh, Shiites and Muslims, I mean, and uh, Sunnis. Sunnis then want to elevate the Quran higher than the other books. And that's created all sorts of tension. And there's one group that holds to a peaceful religion. The other group holds to a very violent religion. And that's what we've seen across the globe. Then Hinduism. What does it say? Well, it says man earns heaven through devotion, meditation, and good works, and self-control. If he fails to succeed, he may try again in a reincarnated form. So in this belief system, man gets many opportunities at perfection for thousands and maybe thousands of years until he gets it right. And then there's Buddhism. Man gains heaven by self-effort only in following Buddha's eightfold path to enlightenment. Maybe you've heard of the eightfold path. I doubt any of you can um, quote the eightfold path. Let me tell you what it involves. It includes right viewpoint, right aspiration, right speech, right behavior, right occupation, uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. I mean, I'm worn out just mentioning those. Who's going to get all that right? But if you do, then suddenly you blossom into nirvana. Nirvana is heaven, and you stop this endless death and life cycle of reincarnation and you have arrived there. And then finally, there's Mormonism. Mormonism believes that all men will spend eternity in some multi-storied level of heaven. There is no hell. I mean, that's kind of the good side of Mormonism. There is no hell. Nobody's going to be punished. But the level you achieve in Mormonism is determined by the scope of each man's good works. That's how you decide, or God decides, where you end up. Now, well, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like you to write two words beside each one of these. Besides modern Judaism, write good works. Besides Islam, write good works. Besides Hinduism, write good works. Buddhism, good works. Mormonism, good works. In other words, in the end, as you take your last breath... And close your eyes, your last thought will be, am I good enough? But you really can't answer that question because nobody knows how good is good enough. And even though there's a lot of encouragement saying you can be better, you can be better, you can do it, you won't know if you're good enough until 
you open your eyes on the other side, and that's what you find out. So there is no assurance of whether you will be good enough to be there. No guarantees. There's only good works. Now, Christianity is a little different. And that's the one, of course, I'm most familiar with, and you are too probably. No one can enter heaven by being better. Man obtains heaven as well as the best of this life only with the help of Jesus Christ. Jesus boldly summed it up this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Christianity is not a bunch of rules that you have to live by in the hope that you would one day break the curve. You'd be in the upper half of the class, so to speak. Uh, You don't earn your way in Christianity. It's not living by some self-justifying a kind of behavior or rules, it's really an encounter with the living God. And that's it, that encounter, in that encounter, you're saying, I'm trusting his help for this life and the next. And so you could sum it up this way, of the world's religions. On the left, that side is saying, my faith is in being good enough. That's the answer to the world's religions would give. And on the other hand, Christianity, on this side of the continuum, says my faith is in the help of a Savior. By the way, that's why they call him a Savior. Savior means helper, rescuer. Doing something for you you can't do for yourself. Now, I want to narrow the scope down a little bit, and I want to describe to you a little bit of my journey on the next page. In fact, if you'll turn there, you'll notice in that diagram... Uh, you've got uh, a little man on the left side of that page. I want you to know that's me. That's me at age 19. That's the best I ever looked there. I mean, thin, lean, and mean, but that's me at page 19. And I want you to know this, that at 19, I was a confused young man. I mean, just like you were probably confused at 19. Most young men are confused at that age. But it seems that most of uh, the human race spends a time early in life where they're confused trying to figure out, you know, what do they believe? Now, in addition to the fact that I was confused, I grew up in a dysfunctional home. And and, and I'm not going to tell you all the ins and outs of my home. I've shared my story before. But I want you to know it was difficult growing up with a mom who tended to be a semi-perfectionist and a dad who was very passive. So it it had impact on me, a lot of dysfunctional impact, with with a mom who nothing was ever quite right. She saw what was wrong with everything. And a dad who was passive and really didn't engage with your life, didn't act that interested, provided you things, provided a great home, but there wasn't any kind of personal interaction, so to speak. And so that left a hole in my heart. And I ended up throughout high school filling that hole with all sorts of dysfunctional behaviors. I mean, my relationships with my girlfriends always ended in a big crash, a calamity, a lot of emotion. Um, Things didn't go as well as I wanted them. My uh, God, I would say, was athletics. When I performed athletically, I was kind of gifted. Uh, I loved the way people noticed. So my God kind of became uh, my, my athletics. And I did believe there was a God. I grew up in church, Southern Baptist Church. 
But I saw him as a, oh, grandfatherly figure, someone who is an old gentleman that I would use like a lucky rabbit's foot when I needed him, especially when I was competing and asking him, let me do my best or, or help me with this. Give me a victory there. And that was kind of the extent of, of my relationship with, with God. So it was in the spring of my senior year. Uh, we had an assembly program, and in the assembly program, we had several Olympic weightlifters that came. They were both world record holders. And afterwards, I went up and talked to one of them, Wes Neal. And uh, as I was talking to him, he, he kind of gave me some real help by offering me a challenge. And he challenged me to consider whether I had invited Jesus to come into my life, whether I had placed my faith in Jesus as God and the forgiver of my sin. Well, I mean, I was 19 years old. I was a senior. I had thought, thought about it briefly, but I ran on to class, and I just dismissed it as, yeah, yeah, that's all that stuff we talk about in church, and I believe all that. But I couldn't tell you what it was. Well, that afternoon on the infill of a track, I was amazed how... Wes Neal's little challenge just kept haunting me and kept haunting me. It just wouldn't leave me alone. So it was that afternoon on the infill of a track while I was warming up for a field event that I made a profound decision in my life. I decided to take athletics off the pedestal of my life. And I asked Jesus if he would take that pedestal in my life. Now, I want you to know that in the 46 years that have followed that decision, I mean, uh, I would have to say it was one of the wisest decisions I ever made in my life. It was one of the smartest decisions. As I look back, I, I see that decision has shaped my life for decades upon decades. I would look at what Jesus said about life, and I would think, you know, I, I'd like that to be a part of my life. I would like that to be integrated into my life. Uh, I would evaluate my life, and I would look at what Jesus would say. Now, I wouldn't embrace it wholeheartedly every time, but it would be a process where I would come to embrace what he was saying as I learned more and more about how he wanted me to, to kind of orchestrate my life. And every year, I would say I built on it a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further until I, now I look back over my life and I'm amazed at the richness and the depth that was there, the way he led me and uh, the way I avoided some issues and then the way I landed firmly in the middle of other issues and then he led me on a path through those issues that grew me and matured me and helped me be the person that he wanted me to be. And so as I look back, I see that richness and that texture and then as I look forward, from sacred ground, I am confident about where I'm going, and I feel good about that, and I'm confident I'll get there. So if I were to summarize my life, I would do it in these two diagrams here, and that's what we're going to go over. Uh, back 46 years ago when I made that decision to give Christ the pedestal of my life, I entered both of these realities simultaneously. Both of them became true for me. Uh, at the top, it's what Christ did for me. In other words, this is what he did for me. I didn't do it for myself. I didn't earn it in any way. He did it for me, period. 
I can't make any claim on it. It's just what he did for me. And the second circle, the bottom one, is the work Christ wants to do in me every day. And so I want to talk briefly about those two circles and the difference between the two and what they represent. So first of all, the work Christ has done for me, and there are three things he did for me. Uh, The first probably gave me the most relief. As a 19-year-old, he forgave my sins. Now, he didn't have to. He chose to as I put my faith in him, as I just trusted him. And what I've learned since then is that, well, sin isn't excused and guilt is real and we live in a moral universe where we will distinguish in the future and do now between right and wrong. And I think most men just kind of instinctively know that from birth And we also instinctively know that sin isn't going to be excused. In fact, it'll be addressed one day. And we kind of have a sense of that in our heart. You usually don't have to teach somebody that. They kind of know there's right and wrong, and I better do right, because sometime in the future I'm going to be held responsible for that. So the question is, how is it addressed? Well, Jesus said he'll he'll address it for me. Uh, And I learned that it will not affect me because Jesus gave himself to be punished for my sin. In other words, he dealt with it for me so that I might go free and he forgave all my sins. In fact, the scripture that really speaks to that as clearly as any scripture is Colossians 2. It says, and you being dead. Now, that was me. I was dead. Notice in my trespasses. He, that is Jesus, made you alive together with him. How? Well, having forgiven you, what? All. Not a few, not some, not just the ones I did five years ago, but nothing in the future, or not just the ones I'm going to do in the future, but he has forgave me all my trespasses. Now, the question is, did I deserve that? No, I didn't deserve it. But he did it. He forgave all my sins, and it's all. A second thing that he did for me is he gave me eternal life, and the emphasis there is that word gave. He gave it to me, no strings attached. And in fact, 1 John 5, 11 puts it this way, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son, well, what else does he have? He has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things, John says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Notice, not guess, not wonder, not be tentative, but you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt you have this eternal life. And then third, notice, he made me a child of God. I was adopted into a broader, bigger family. It was his family. And you may be familiar with with John 1.12, it says, but as many as received him, now that's what I did when I gave him the pedestal of my life, you received him, I embraced him by faith, to them, in other words, to Doug, he gave the right to become a child, a children of God. Now those are three things that you need to know that God did for me. And I want to give you three things I want you to 
to add to that that you need to know about that upper circle, this is important. Everything in that upper circle you can't improve on. You cannot improve on. I mean, how can you prove, improve on all your sins being forgiven? They're all forgiven. You can't. In fact, how can you improve on being given eternal life? You did nothing to earn it, so there's nothing you can do to improve on that. And then, last, then lastly, that top circle is permanent. It's a forever circle of reality. It's permanent. Now, at the same time that I've told you what Christ has done for me, well, there are things that Christ wants to do in me. Now, I could list hundreds of those things, just hundreds of them, but I want to summarize it by giving you three that will give, I think, great clarity to the adventure we have in this world as men. The first is... Uh, he wants me to. He wants to help me experience an abundant life. Remember, we talked about those man-sized adventures. He wants to have a, help us experience those man-sized adventures. So, what might be in that slice of the pie might be a brand new Harley, because that's an adventure to you, traveling across the United States with your wife on the back after the kids graduate leave. Or it might be hunting trips. It may be fishing trips. It could be uh, traveling around the world. It could be skydiving or rock climbing. I mean, there is an adventure in life that God wants you to experience, or maybe many adventures, man-sized adventures, that will give your life fun and excitement. They're enjoyable. And the key word here is to enjoy. God wants you to enjoy life. In fact, he said in John 10, I've come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. In fact, you've seen that verse before. But from this point forward, I want you to think of that abundant life as that man-sized fun adventure. It includes you having fun in life. And I want you to know, as I look back on my life over the past 46 years, that's exactly what I've experienced. I mean, I've had the privilege of staying on the Great Wall of China. I have live with a tribe of Tibetan Buddhists called the Kham in the Himalayas for ten for two weeks. I, I have spent time uh, retracing Paul's steps throughout uh, Turkey and Greece, which was a highlight, one of the highlights of my life. I stood there and looked at the Parthenon. I mean, I, I would say it's been abundant. Okay, secondly, he helps me do good works. Now, when I say good works, you need to be thinking of that noble cause adventure. We said, man, when man was created by God, he was created to accomplish something noble, something bigger than himself. And part of that fight is to see good spread in the world. And part of what your purpose is on this earth is to advance the causes of God, advance the goodness of God. So you've been designed and God has even gifted you to accomplish that. So, I mean, every man needs to find that noble cause, that thing that's bigger than himself he can give his life to. And the scriptures speak to that as well. I mean, in Ephesians 2.10 it says, this is Christ speaking, 
Um, he's talking, or Paul speaking, talking about who we are in Christ. He says, we are his workmanship. Created, by the way, that should be word, has the, uh, the emphasis of being recreated. Recreated in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God designed you to do certain things. And many of those things have to do with that noble cause adventure. And he wants to reward you with with that in the future. But it doesn't mean you're going to do it automatically. See, it's in the bottom circle. You've been gifted that direction, but you've got to choose to do it. You've got to cooperate to do it. And then thirdly, he wants you... He wants to help me love others in a real significant way. And you can squeeze that all the way down to that means your wife, your family, your children. Uh, He wants us to love well. But it's it's even beyond that. It's love other people well. In fact, here's what he said in John 15, 12. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. And then he adds this very significant statement as I have loved you. In other words, as you become more and more adept at understanding how deeply you have been loved by God, it moves you internally. It's not something you have to do externally, but it moves you internally to want to love others that way because God has loved you so significantly. You could call that the life of living love. And that, too, is part of that adventure. So let me give you three characteristics of the bottom circle, and you can contrast those with the three characteristics of the top circle, and you'll begin to see the difference. They are significant. Uh, The first is you can improve on this circle. In other words, you can always get more abundant life. You can always increase your good works. You can always love people more and more and better and better. You can improve on that circle. Man, remember, the top circle you can't improve on. It's just been given to you. It's not based upon anything you do. This one you can improve on. Secondly, you can fall out of this circle. I mean, this circle... Uh, is about cooperating with Jesus Christ in your life as the living God. So there's a sense to with which you cooperate with him and you draw upon his help. On the other hand, you can always come to the place where you say, I don't want to do that anymore. And you can choose to fall out of that circle. And I guess the question is, when you fall out, what do you fall out to? Well, I want you to know you fall out to Frank Sinatra's world. Do you want to know what Frank Sinatra's world is? Listen. I faced it all, and I stood tall, and did it my way. So you hear his words, uh, I faced it all, I stood tall, and I did it my way. I mean, that's Frank Sinatra's world, and you can choose. I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it like Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way. Uh, so there are two ways in that bottom circle. I mean, you can do it Christ's way or you can do it your way. And, and frankly, you go between that, that his, God's way and your way many times today. I mean, two, three, four times today as you wrestle with what, you, what God wants you to do, what you think you do, and you kind of go back and forth with that. 
But the more you stay in the circle at the bottom, that is God's way or Christ's way, the more adventure, the more fun, the more you have that noble cause, the better you're loving people. But we can choose to walk away from that bottom circle. So that, what that means is, in, finally, that bottom circle is a dynamic circle. And just by its nature, you can see, you can fall out of it so it's dynamic. That top circle, that's a permanent circle, but the bottom one's dynamic. You can go in and out every day. But that top circle is not impacted by anything you do. It's been given to you, and that's sealed and delivered to you. And then the bottom line, uh, or the line down the middle of that page, that represents death. That's the line of death. Now, now when I say death this time, I'm, I'm not talking about the sacred ground of the mind. I'm talking about the sacred ground of reality. Every man in this room is going to die. No one of, uh, none of us are going to miss that. So these two realities on the left and on the right, uh, two realities on the left, what happens there leads to two realities on the right. So, first, because of what Jesus has done for you, your sins are forgiven. I mean, he's made you a child of God. He gives you eternal life. Now, that has nothing to do with the day-to-day at all. That has all been given to you. You're, that's what you get when you go to heaven because you've placed your trust in Christ. I mean, here's the way Philippians puts it. Paul is speaking in the present, uh, looking forward, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, is in heaven. You remember what Lucilla said to, Glenn, to, the, to Maximus there in that movie clip we saw? Your home, your going home. Our home is another place than this earth. It's heaven. That's our genuine home. In fact, what Paul wants us to understand is that our life on this earth is just temporary housing. But we were built, once you put your faith in Christ, for another place, and that will be materialized in heaven. Notice he goes on to say, For our citizenship is in heaven, which we also eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Now, we talked about that last week, that we may be conformed, and His how our lowly bodies will eventually look to His glorious body. So, as we look at that top circle, the significant special insight is I'm securing Christ forever. In other words, that reality, that top circle, has been guaranteed It's guaranteed. It's not because of how I live or how I behave or what I do. It's because all of what Christ has done for you. So it doesn't make any difference how you feel. That's been guaranteed you. On the other hand, that lower circle has to do with how you interact with Christ and how you seek His help in the day-to-day with the hard decisions regarding your life, your family, your purpose, your design, how my works impact eternity. And so I can do it my way, or I can do it, which is Frank Sinatra's way, or I can do it Christ's way. And if I depend upon Christ to do it His way, it will either earn me or forfeit me rewards. And that's what we talked about last week. It will earn me rewards, or if I decide to do it Frank Sinatra's way, it will forfeit me rewards. 
In fact, 1 Corinthians 3 speaks directly to that. Uh, it, says, it says this, Now, if anyone builds on a foundation, in other words, there is, there is, uh, there are no, no man has any guarantees about eternity except that which was built on the foundation that was laid by Jesus Christ, which we embrace by faith. But if we have laid that foundation by faith, Paul says, that's the foundation you build on with those good works. And that leads to that lower circle where you interact with God in the day-to-day. And if you're building on that foundation, you're either building gold, silver, precious stones, or what you're building is wood, hay, straw. And each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. He says the fire is going to test each man's work for what sort it is. If any man's work which has been built upon endures, he's, he will receive reward. On the other hand, if it's revealed as wood, hay, or stubble, it will not survive. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, I've heard it said that heaven is going to be a place where there will be no pain. That's not true. I mean, there it is right there. You will suffer loss. If what you thought you did uh, on this earth was wood, hay. What you did on this earth was wood, hay, or stubble. It's burned up. Gold, silver, and precious will, will remain, go through the fire. And you will have some sense of loss. I wish I had lived my life better. I mean, you're guaranteed heaven. That's never in question. But... I wish I'd lived my life better on this earth. And that's why it, he ends that verse by saying he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. And the special insight is I'm responsible to Christ every day. So you're responsible for Christ today, I mean this Tuesday. Now guys, what I've described here is one man's journey, and this is the really the end in mind we need to begin with. You need to know what's guaranteed and what can never be taken away from you. And you need to also know where you're responsible for engaging with the adventures that God wants you to have in life and how that earns or forfeits rewards to you in heaven. So you get to decide on that bottom circle yourself. So the question is, what do you believe? I mean, what do you believe? Every guy in this room believes something, um, and every option is going to require faith, so what do you believe? You guys, you remember the popular game show, So You Want to Be a Millionaire? I mean, it comes on now, but Regis is not doing it. I mean, uh, people would compete in that game show, uh, answering questions, hoping to go up the chain of command until they eventually win a million dollars. And so they'd ask you questions, you answered it properly, you earned so much money, and you went to the next level and the next level. And remember in that show, if you couldn't answer the question, they gave you lifelines. And so you would call upon a lifeline to help you answer that question. Well, this morning I want to pretend that we are, we're, have a much bigger who wants to be a millionaire going on. Uh, this is who wants to be a great adventurer. And you've answered all the questions perfectly. And you're right at that last question, the million-dollar question. And that question that pops up on the screen is, what happens when you die? 
what happens when you die. So you, you don't you ask the, the computer to tell you what are the options. So picture yourself sitting in front of your computer and suddenly all four options pop up on the screen. A says it's over. B says it's not over and whatever is next will be fine. C says it's not over and I'm good enough for what's next. And D says it's not over and I'll need help for what's next. So you look at Regis and you go, I don't know. Can I use a lifeline? And so he says, sure. So Regis says, computer, eliminate two of the answers. And so you're left with, it's not over and I'm good enough for what's next. Or it's not over and I will need help for what's next. But you're still not sure. So you ask Regis, can I phone a friend? And I want you to know I'm here today to be your friend. And if you find yourself wrestling with this and not sure about your future, I would love to sit down with you maybe over lunch or breakfast and we could talk about it. Or maybe you came with a friend today that uh, has already wrestled through uh, these issues and you feel more comfortable talking with him. And that's, that's fine. But I do want you to know that not addressing the question and saying, I'm just going to ignore it, or I just don't know, that that too is a faith decision. It would probably be a foolish faith decision. You need to wrestle with these things. So what do you believe? Well, you've got to decide. So how are you going to end the conclusion you come to? Well, it's going to impact your life for the rest of your life, for the, for the good or for the bad, and it's going to shape the course and direction over your life, uh, for your life remaining on this earth and the one in the future that you get to experience. So what are you going to decide? I mean, which one are you going to choose of the remaining ones? Could you throw those back up of these remaining ones? It's your choice. So have you decided? And then Regis is going to ask you, is that your final answer? Because you need to make sure. So I would love to chat with you. Uh, this has been kind of an overview of our future, and you can see that our future, what life could be like in heaven, is greatly impacted by today and the adventures we, we, uh, we get to live and who we answer to today and who we like take, let take the pedestal of our life. And I would love to talk to you about it. Now, uh, in the future, we're meeting next week, the 21st. I know that's Thanksgiving week. Uh, but you don't want to miss refocusing my life for an adventure, then I'm going to give you a sheet that's going to help you provide a richer focus for your life. It's a worksheet that I guarantee you, if you work it through, it'll change the way you think about your life. It's a simple, but it's a profound tool. And then the week after Thanksgiving, uh, be advised of the Adventure Busters part one and part two the next week, there are certain things that will destroy an adventure for you, and they're not what you think they are. You don't want to miss that. And then one of the best adventures in history, uh, we're going to talk about that. Then we'll take a Christmas break, and we'll come back, and you'll start back over break. You're going to take an assessment online. You're going to come back, and we're going to go over that. So thanks for sticking with me today, guys. Thanks for coming. Enjoy your small group. <laughs>